Welcome to the Seedwell Podcast. In this message, Alex Carney will be with us speaking on the book of Esther and specifically how it takes time to heal, rebuild, and repair. And he'll be using the book of Esther to speak on this and definitely a great message. I hope that you are encouraged and guided by today's message. Tonight, I'm actually teaching from an iPad and also uh, printed out notes. Because the first time that I taught, uh, I was using an iPad. It was fully charged. Everything was ready to go. And then I got right into my sermon about three minutes in, and then it just died. Uh, so I was like, hey, tonight we're going to talk about, and like, the thing went black. Uh, and then like, the students were like, okay, so what? Like, what are we going to talk about? Uh, and it, I was like, you know, looking at it, I was like, oh gosh, this thing's not going to turn on. You kind of look like that, uh, you know, like that old person in your life who like, they're really technologically, like they don't really know anything. And so they always look at a phone, they're like, oh, what's a JPEG? Like I was looking at the iPad like that. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how this thing works. And so uh, I remember youth leaders were sitting in the back of the room and they were like, man, this guy isn't going to make it. <laughs> this guy's a loser. <laughs> Get off the stage, intern. Uh, so it was a great uh, introduction to student ministry, uh, but tonight, uh, what, and if it is your first time with us, uh, we just want to say welcome home. We're so glad that you're here. A couple of things to know about us as a ministry is that we like to have fun, yes? yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll work on that part. <laughs> uh, but we love to have fun as a ministry. So we love to have fun not only in worship, but we also love to have fun uh, through even the parties that we do, to uh, even in teaching. So this can be interactive. This can be engaging. No one likes that, that college class where the professor just reads the whole time. You know, it's not, you're not even like really engaging. They're just regurgitating everything on the screen. You're like, wow, it's the most powerful lecture of all time. I don't want this to be one of those things where, okay, I just read up on the screen. But this can be fun. This can be interactive. So let's engage uh, with this. So let's start off tonight. Uh, I thought it might be cheesy, whatever. Just go along with it. I want you, who, who here in the room is like competitive? Like you're, okay, and you're competitive over things like don't even matter. Like there's not even a prize to it. You just want it for bragging rights. <laughs> okay, you, you just want to be competitive for bragging rights. Uh, so right now I want you just to get with a person next to you. Maybe you got a friend. Maybe you don't know. Okay, we're just going to play a little game really quick, and we'll see how really competitive you are. So I'm just going to throw up a couple things on the screen, and you tell me how long it takes uh, to heal, uh, rebuild, or repair. So you tell me how long it takes to heal, rebuild, or repair. Let's throw the first one up there. So the first one is how long does it take uh, for a broken leg to heal? Just shout it out. How long do you think? Six... Nine months, my gosh. You lost your leg if you have nine months to heal. <laughs> Eight weeks. That's a solid number. I like that. If you're a medical profession in this room, I'm literally handing you a freebie. Okay? So let's throw it up there. What well, the answer is six to eight weeks. Six. <laughs> Some of you guys are like way off. Some of you guys are so far off. All right, next one. Okay, let's say you're building a thousand-piece puzzle and you got that one friend and you set it up on the table and they just come and just whip it off. You know you got that one friend. How long do you think in one sitting to rebuild a 1,000-piece puzzle? If you're me, I'm not ever going to do a puzzle. Because how bored you got to be to do a puzzle. <laughs> oh, I just offended so many puzzle lovers. Uh, okay, a puzzle to rebuild it. Three to ten hours. Hey, don't hate the player, hate the game, okay? I got these off of Google, it's not that accurate. Okay, next one. How long does it take, by a professional, how long does it take to repair an iPhone screen? Okay, 30 minutes. An hour? 11 days? I don't know. If you're going with Geek Squad, maybe. 
All right, throw it up there. 30 minutes. Solid. <laughs> Some of you guys got way too competitive over this game. It just takes, sometimes things just take uh, a while for it to heal, rebuild, or repair. And there's some things that probably didn't take as long as you think it would. For some of those, it actually took longer than probably what you thought. And when I was actually at a meeting with our uh, staff here at, at, uh, at Sugarloaf, we went over and they said, guess how long it takes, or how long it took Berlin to repair from World War II? And it took them nine years to rebuild. Nine years. And it blew me away. And then I started to think of, man, well, what, what other things does it take? How, how long are other areas or your journeys of your life? And maybe some of you in this room or you know other people who you've experienced some pretty heavy stuff. There's some heaviness that you've gone through. There's some trauma that you've walked through. And it can take months, if not years, for that to heal, rebuild, and repair. It just takes time to heal, rebuild, and repair. Say that with me. It takes time to heal, rebuild, repair. Let's do it again. Make sure everyone's on the same page. It takes time to heal, rebuild, repair. How many have ever taken antibiotics before? You, got, you had some sort of, I don't know, infection, whatever. You got antibiotics, and you're always told to what? Take the whole thing. You're told to finish out what you're prescribed to because sometimes... It's easy to, well, I can just kind of start to feel better, so I'm just not going to finish my uh, prescription. I'm not going to finish out the antibiotic. And the FDA recommends, or what they say is that, well, if you actually stop too soon, you can run the risk of the remaining bacteria becoming a bigger problem, leading to more doctor's visits, leading to longer illnesses, more complicated illnesses. And sometimes I think that we do this in our faith. And just when we feel like we're starting to do better spiritually, mentally, emotionally, we check out of the hospital too soon, and then we're left with things that are unresolved. We have things in our heart that are still unresolved. It takes time to heal, rebuild, and repair. God can't continue to write the story for your life if you're always hung up on a single chapter. If you're always stuck on the one thing, what's the one thing that's unresolved in you? <laughs> the one thing that just, ah, oh, I, I always come back to that season of my life. I just don't get it. I'm just so confused about that. I come back to that one period of trauma that I was in. I just don't have any closure on it. Every area that doesn't have closure will eventually have exposure. And God will reveal the brokenness that's within you. And sometimes it just takes discernment knowing what's actually broken. Listen to what uh, an author and writer, Kirk Byron Jones, says. He goes over this really powerful quote. He says, we have many forms of escape. One unspoken but prevalent method is by choosing to remain confused about something. Selective ignorance. Confusion frees us from responsibility. We nurture confusion inside of ourselves by purposely resisting deepening awareness and clarity. Oof. This is a way of running from pain through selective ignorance in our personal lives. There are some things we would rather not know, and we fear that the truth would be too much to handle. Oof. There are some things that might just be unresolved in you, but if I can just nurture confusion, I'll never have to understand what it actually is. And there are just some things that God wants to reveal in you. And so tonight, we're going to go over the book of Esther. How many of you ever read the book of Esther before? You've sat in this before. Some of you guys know this uh, story. 
you know that there's this iconic verse where, where it says, uh, for such a time as this. And that moment hinged on everything that was happening internally inside the palace. That moment was birthed on an awareness of what was actually broken, what was actually going on on the inside. And sometimes we're really good. We're really good at uh, going over things that, and we like to have spiritual excuses as to what's really broken. We like to say, oh, well, it's just the pressure of my job. I'm just busy. I'm tired. I'm working. I'm doing a lot of schoolwork. We can come up with a lot of great spiritual excuses as to what's really broken. And as you turn there, you might got a Bible with you. If you don't, and maybe, uh, you know, hey, you're still trying out the whole church thing. You don't really know what you believe, if you believe in Jesus at all, and that's okay. We'll have the verses up on the screen behind me. But as you're turning there, you might have a Bible with you. You might uh, got notes with you. You can go ahead and do that. And while you guys do that, I'm going to go over the context of what's happening in the book of Esther. So the book of Esther is happening in about 3rd or 4th century B.C., meaning uh, that this is about three, 4,000 years before Jesus came into the picture, into the New Testament. And so the Bible consists of Old and a New Testament. The Old Testament focuses on the narrative of the nation of Israel, and God chose that nation to have a covenant with, to use that nation to redeem a lost and broken world until Jesus comes in and dies on the cross once and for all for our sins. And so we see this cycle that happens in the Old Testament. You see the, uh, the nation of Israel, they, they, they're serving the Lord, they're obedient, and then they go through this period where they fall into sin and idolatry, and then they get oppressed by another nation, and then they uh, cry out and they're asking God to raise somebody up to deliver them, and then they step into a season of deliverance, ultimately for God to deliver them once again, ultimately to repeat the whole cycle of serving, obeying, disobeying, and <laughs> repeating the whole cycle again and again and again. And Esther picks up right where the nation is oppressed. And so they're under the rule and reign of King Xerxes. And it says this right in the beginning of Esther. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the provinces were present for a full 180 days, okay, half a year. We're having a bank, we're having a party for half a year. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, as if 180 days wasn't enough. <laughs> Lasting, or a banquet that lasts seven days. And in the enclosed garden in the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of, try saying that word, uh, marble, <laughs> mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Have you ever been so rich you don't know how to pronounce what you bought? Me neither. Uh, wine was served in goblets of, go of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. So on the outside, this is great. On the outside, hey, we're having a party 24-7. the outside, we're just living our best life. I mean, look at, look at the majesty and the splendor and the royalty that he's displaying. Okay, just think about, think about the, the, the richest parts of Gwinnett right now. Okay, you don't even go into Chateau Lawn, and you don't even see people showing off every, uh, 
I don't know, you might. <laughs> you might go by that one house that's got like a statue out front. And it's like the bow and arrow with the guy like shooting an arrow off in the distance. And it's like the lion is like, he's like coming forth. And there's like water like flowing out. And I'm like driving by my Kia Forte. I'm like, yeah, dude. <laughs> this is expensive too, man. <laughs> Eco-friendly. Have you ever driven by someone's house and then you like, you go, you go by and then you say, oh, I, I, they're pretty well off. I wonder what they do. You know what I mean? You go by some of those houses and you're like, that place is huge. I wonder what they do. Like, you, you're a Falcons player, you own Apple, you're one of those rare brain surgeons, only five of you in the country. I don't know what you do, but on the outside, it looks great. And if I'm going by the city of Susa, I'm going to see, okay, hey, this actually looks pretty great. That king is well off. I wonder what he does. And you get to see what he, get, what he displays when, in fact, you don't really know what's going on on the inside. And sometimes, and you know, there's people in your life that you like to just display certain things. And you got that one friend that you know, well, hey, you're having a bad day. And they know you're having a bad day. But you also try to show on like a good smiley face and, hey, everything's okay. But they know internally you're not okay. And sometimes you like to display to God, oh, here's, our, here's my vast wealth. Here's my, my, my white and blue linen. Here, here's my couches of gold. You like to display more to God of what you have rather than who you are. See, you might be able to spot it pretty easily in other people. And that can be easy. But then when God has to do it in you, it's kind of ugly. When God has to reveal what's really broken, what's really on the inside, that can be an ugly experience. What does it say in 1 Samuel? For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The Lord looks at the what? The Lord looks at the heart. So it doesn't matter what you say, what you post, what you talk about. God's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about what's on the inside. And it takes discernment to know what's really broken. And it takes time to figure that out. So you got a picture of the outside? Okay, we got the picture of the outside. It's, I mean, it's majesty, it's royalty, it's 180 days, it's... That's, you know, 180 days. Okay, you got that picture. Great. That's the party. That's the outside. If you're at Enneagram 7, you're living your best life. If, <laughs> you, you automatically knew who an Enneagram 7 was in this room <laughs> as soon as that happened. Now, okay, what's happening on the inside? Now, the outside doesn't look as great as the inside. See, what's happening on the inside is that King Xerxes, while he's there, while they're doing all of these banquets, so is the queen, Queen Vashti, who is there, and she wanted to have a banquet for herself. And so now the king, King Xerxes, basically pulls her in and says, hey, I want you to basically dress up, look beautiful. I want you to basically kind of be my beauty pageant for a second. Uh, we good? All right, good. You got to acknowledge him, man. You can't just like not address what's happening. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Uh, so on the, on the outside, this is what they're displaying. But on the inside, King Xerxes is wanting her to basically do be a, be a beauty pageant. And she's like, No. I'm not going to dress up for you. I'm not going to try to show off my beauty for your nobles and your princes and all your other officials. And so out of his rage, King Xerxes basically removes her out of the palace. So now another queen has to step into play, and that's where Esther comes in. Now Esther plays a vital role inside the palace only because of her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai is about to reveal what's about to happen on the inside of the palace. So while Esther is now appointed queen, there's another internal conflict that starts to arise, and that's Haman. 
Like, who the heck is Haman? Where does Haman guy come from? And all of a sudden, Haman now, he gets appointed. So just as Esther gets appointed to be queen, so does Haman now get appointed to be one uh, of the highest honor more than anybody. Look at what it says in this next verse in Esther. So after these events, King Xerxes, he, he honors Haman. So he's going to elevate him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of the other nobles and officials. So now that Haman has this role, now that he has this position, he's up at the top. And when he gets up at the top, now he wants everybody to bow to who he is. And everybody did it except for Mordecai. And then he, he just fumed with rage. He was so irate that he wanted to kill not only Mordecai, but also all of his people. Look at what it says in that next verse. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. Instead, he wanted to kill off all of Haman's people. How did we go? First of all, where did Haman come from? Now, all of a sudden, we went from like here to here to here really quick. Things started escalating at an exponential rate. And now you're starting to wonder like, what the heck is happening? Why is this a big deal? And how did Haman get all this power? Haman has all this power and authority because King Xerxes gave him a signet ring. In that culture, if you were given a ring, it had the king's name engraved on it, which means that all power and authority is now onto you. So now Haman's the one who's calling the shots. He's the one pulling the strings. And this is a big deal because this is everything about the nation of Israel, <laughs> Mordecai basically told Esther that when she became queen, now she's in this spot. Hey, don't, don't reveal your identity. Don't reveal who you are because we could be in trouble. And now, we're, now we seem like we're at, at a bigger state of trouble. Now we're at an all-time high. Now everything's on the line. The future of our story. What God, and you can imagine, just put yourself in their shoes for a second. Think about like everything about our people, everything God promised, everything that God had a covenant relationship with. What about everything that you said? What about everything that you promised? What about everything that you had in store for us? What is the future of our story? What do you have for us? And maybe all hope is lost. Maybe it'll never work out. Maybe God will never do what he said he would do. And you can imagine everything that's at stake and everything that's now escalating and it's amazing how much things have escalated, and yet they still don't know what's happening inside the palace. Look at what it says in, in verse 6. So Haddock, that's a name that you don't name your kid. You know, it's a little confusing for teachers. So Haddock went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's, uh, king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead, plead with him for her people. Mordecai had to go to Esther and reveal, hey, look at what's really happening inside the palace. I'm on the outside. I'm not a noble. I'm not an official. I have no royal position here, but look what's happening. And he's on the outside of the palace looking on the inside saying, hey, this is, who, this is what's really going on. And more importantly, this is who is really there. 
It didn't matter that King Xerxes was there because as long as he gave that ring over to Haman, all power and authority is now transferred over to him. And it's easy to say that Jesus is the king of your heart, yet you always give power and authority over to your emotions. It's easy to say, well, that yeah, Jesus, you're on the throne, but I'll allow Haman to rule my heart. It didn't matter who was king. It mattered what was happening on the inside. It didn't mattered who was really there. And when internal conflict starts to rise, when things escalate, God likes to come to you and just reveal to you what's happened inside your palace. What's really going on inside your heart? Who's, who's really making the calls? Who's really pulling the strings? Who's making the decisions? And we can deceive ourselves and say that God is on the throne, yet we always give it to our emotions, our past mistakes, our disappointments, our insecurities. A question worth writing down and worth asking is when things are escalating, what is exposing? When internal conflict is rising within you, what is exposing? And more importantly, what is God doing in it? When 2020 came upon you, who came out of you? When political conversations came up, how did you react? When social injustice started happening, how did you respond? When disappointments came, what did it really reveal? It often reveals what's not healed and what's not resolved and what's broken. This is the one thing you got to know. You'll never be able to heal, rebuild, or repair with things that are internally unresolved. You'll never be able to heal, rebuild, or repair with things that are internally unresolved. For those of you that know, uh, like Heather said, that I was a resident in C12. And by about October 2019 is when I stepped out of the residency and I wanted to pursue uh, something else that was always eating at me and is always in the conversation of calling and never ultimately had a lot of sense of clarity on it. And I made a decision to uh, go get some medical training that I would use in war-torn areas. And some of you guys were here for that announcement when I transitioned out of C12. And long story short, it was a huge disappointment. None of it worked. It failed. And I had to sit in the reality of that season being so disappointing, that season being so confusing, that season not having any clarity, and I had all these questions, and people would come back and respond, and they'd ask all these questions, and they said, well, is God wrong then, or is he wrong now? Did you hear God wrong, or did you hear God right? Were you obedient then, or were you not obedient now? What's your calling? What's your identity? What are you going to do now? Are you still called the full-time ministry? Oof. People ask a lot of personal questions, and all I gave was political answers. <laughs> every poke, every question always hit what was unresolved. It hit an insecurity. It hit what I wasn't clear about. And after the academy, I stepped out of it. I came back into the residency program, and I said, oh, thank God that I'm out of that place. I remember actually having a meeting with Heather 
uh, <laughs> at our, uh, like I said, at Central Campus. And uh, I sat across from her and I sat down and she goes, um, <laughs> she said it so politely. Uh, she goes, hey, are you, uh, are you doing okay? And I was like, yeah, of course. You know, things are great. Things are fine. Like, I love life. Uh, <laughs> and she goes, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you look like you haven't slept. <laughs> and you said it so kindly and so tenderly, but AKA, hey, you look like garbage. <laughs> you haven't slept in days. That's what you look like right now. And when I stepped out of that season in my life, I thought, okay, now that I came back into the residency, I came back into the promised land. Holy cow. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. I'm now out of where I've been until I figured out, no, what's still unresolved? And I went through counseling for symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and derealization disorder. And I sat in counseling for six months. And him just asking me again and again and again, what's your purpose? What's your purpose? Such a simple question. All I gave was a bunch of Christian jargon. I just gave the, the simple answer. And he goes, what's your purpose? I'll baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whatever. Move on. Next question. He goes, no, what's your purpose? It's the one thing that I was so confused about. And maybe for some of you in this room, you're confused about your purpose. If Jesus took away your title or your position, what would actually be left? He said, your purpose is not any statement. Don't make it more complex than what it needs to be. Your purpose is just to look more like Jesus. That's your purpose. And he said, if your purpose is to look more like Jesus, then don't be confused when you go through suffering either. And then he got really up and personal, as if it wasn't personal enough. <laughs> and he pulled out the cup of blessing and then the cup of suffering. He said, Jesus often had these two cups. He said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, some of you guys know that verse, where Jesus is crying out to God, to his Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. But God, if, if you're willing, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering. And he said, I want you to hold this cup. This is your cup of suffering. This is yours to hold. This is yours to bear. And he said, don't be surprised. If your purpose is to look more like Jesus, then you're going to have your Gethsemane moments too. And he said, what's in your cup of suffering? And I said, well, disappointments, anger towards God, things that I'm confused about, things that I don't uh, have clarity on. I'm putting things in that cup that actually tie back to God, and I'm really frustrated. He said, yeah, I know. And he said, what was in Jesus' cup of suffering? He said, your disappointments and your sin. Jesus can walk with you in your suffering because he bore yours before you bore his. And in some of the deepest unresolved things, in some of the deepest pain, in some of the deepest agony, while you're crying why over the pain and the trials that you're in, maybe God is speaking through you and asking why over the sin and suffering of creation. So your why becomes his why. Your suffering becomes his suffering and you share more in that moment than you like to. It just takes time to heal, rebuild, and repair. 
And when things are unresolved, when things are broken, when you have that quote-unquote inner Haman in your heart, it's usually attached to a certain pain. And the problem with pain is that it's not that it's philosophical. It's not that you can't understand it in its concept. The problem with pain is not even that it's theological. It's not that you don't even know any biblical examples of it. Because there's so many people who wrestle with, with pain and they go through different uh, points in their life. All the way from Moses to David to Paul to even Jesus himself. The problem with pain and the problem with unresolved things is that sometimes there is just a relational breakdown between you and God. The problem isn't philosophical. It's not theological. It's relational. Where is there a relational breakdown between me and God? And look at how the story of Esther ends. It says, just as the king returned from the palace, so now Haman is exposed. Haman is exposed for who he really is. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, attending the king, a pole reaching out to a height of 50 cubits, stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Okay, look at what it says. He had set it up, okay, and Haman is there to help the king. Haman is here to help. At the beginning, Haman, or sorry, Mordecai. Mordecai is there to help. Mordecai is there to help the king. Mordecai is the one who at the beginning is saying, hey, there's a plot to kill the king. And he is there to help. He's the one who's exposing who Haman really is. He is there to help. And it will take discernment knowing what really needs to be put to death. Because you can set up poles for, for things to be impaled on that are actually meant to help you. When the palace only knew what was unhealthy... Of course Haman's going to want to kill off Mordecai, who actually is healthy, and the very thing that is healthy trying to get in. So when all you've ever experienced is an unhealthy family, no wonder why it's so hard to embrace what a healthy family looks like. So now when you come into C12 and there's people who actually want to love you and accept you for who you are, you don't know what to do with that. When all you've had is unhealthy friendships and relationships, of course, when, all you, when now when a healthy one comes in, you don't know what to do with it because it's not familiar to you. When all you've had is an unhealthy character maybe in this last season, you don't know what to do when God wants to show you what it, it, what it looks like to be healthy. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you and he wants to correct you and teach you. He doesn't want to leave you where he found you, but he loves you so much that he wants you to continue to take steps to grow. And if we're not careful, we can miss it and we can prevent God from continuing to write our story because we're too busy setting up poles for the wrong things to die on. And if you miss it, if you miss this moment, that Esther had for such a time as this, that moment hinged on what was happening internally. Her decision hinged on an awareness of what was broken. And we have to be aware of what is broken within us. And if we're not careful, we'll always settle and we'll kill off everything that's healthy. And we'll exchange it and we'll confuse the two. And we'll always confuse unhealthy with unfamiliar. Just because it's not familiar to you doesn't mean it's not healthy. And when God wants to come and tug on your heart, it might seem wrong. It might seem bad. 
And if we're not careful, we'll, we, we will relive our own version of Esther again and again and again. Not because we missed a decision being made, but because we didn't know what was actually broken. We didn't know what was internally unresolved. And sometimes you hang on to those. You hang on to those things that are unresolved. You hang on to those things that cause so much trauma in your life. You hang on to those things that were past disappointments because it kind of gives you a sense of entitlement and control again. And you can use it against God and you bring it to him and you say, well, God, you say that you're faithful, but obviously not because I went through this trauma and I didn't see that you were there. Well, God, you say that you work all things out for those who love you, but how come it didn't work out? Well, God, that you, you say and you promised this. You said that you would do this and how come it didn't happen? And every past unresolved thing, you'll always find a way to use it against him if God doesn't come and bring closure in your heart. So how do you figure that out? Maybe you know what those are, maybe you don't. What unravels you? What are your triggers? Why is that when people give you personal questions, you respond with political answers? What things do you talk about casually with other people, but you know it affects you a whole lot more inwardly than you'd like to admit? Where have you checked out of the hospital too soon? You might know these things, you might not. But I think this is something that you can do and reflect on this question. What things do I need to put to death? What things do I need to put to death? Maybe it's your anger over a certain thing in your life that you thought would have worked out and now you just, you're so angry about it. Maybe you have to put to death your fear And out of your fear, you start to worry. And out of your worry, you start to basically now live your own life because you're not confident or have faith in God that he would do what he said he would do. And maybe you need to put that to death. Maybe it's your pride. It's your unmet expectations. It's your disappointments. And I want to invite the, the band to come um, back on up. And as we take some time to sit in this, and sometimes it's a slow and it's a painful death. Sometimes you know those things that just have to die. You know those things that God right now is putting on your heart. <laughs> I've, God's been saying, I've been trying to come back to you in this season again about that one particular issue. It's not because I hate you, but because I love you so much that I want you to start stepping into what it looks like to be a healthy follower of Jesus. I want you to be a part of a healthy community here at C12. I want you to start taking steps to living a healthier lifestyle. And God is prompting you, and you know that there's things that just have to be impaled. Some of you experience some pretty heavy, traumatic things. There's things that you're walking through right now that you don't have any answers for. You don't have any closure for. There are things right now along your journey that you're just wondering. You have all the questions. You have, you have all these questions for God, and yet there just seems to never be any answers or any closure for you. And some of it is not just going to take one simple prayer. Some of it might be a process. It might be that you have to go to counseling. 
It might be that you have to be with someone who's there to walk alongside of you in the journey because it takes time to heal, rebuild, and repair. It just takes time. And I want to invite you into a moment where you just get to reflect on what are the things that you know that God wants you to put to death? What are the things that are unresolved in you? Things from maybe years ago. Trauma that you've experienced. Maybe the last year or two, 2020 was never great. And there's things that you just can't move on from. I want you to sit and reflect on what God is putting in you. I want to pray over you. So God, we just come before you. God, we know that there are, God, things in our life, Father, that we know that we have to put to death. God, we know that there are things, God, that are unresolved in our heart. We know that there are things that along the journey, God, maybe we checked out too soon. Maybe we started the path. Maybe we started the journey. And as soon as we started feeling a little bit better, God, we checked out on you. We tuned your voice out. We tuned your comfort out. We tuned your plan out. And God, what you want is for our obedience. What you want is our heart to be inclined with yours. So God, I pray specifically, Father, for those that just feel broken in their hearts, that feel broken in their spirit, that feel broken along their journey. Because you, Jesus, said, blessed are they. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And God, may you take people on a journey, going from being broken in spirit to now pure in heart. Would you mend their heart? Would you, Holy Spirit, reveal yourself as the counselor and as the teacher and as the comforter? The things that are just unresolved, God, may we bring that up to you. May you give us clarity. May you give us peace. May you give us your assurance. Tonight isn't powerful because we just heard some words. God, tonight's powerful because you're in the room. Tonight is powerful because, God, you're present. You're here. You're living. You're active. So God, let us become aware of your presence in this room. Let us become aware of what you want to do, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the C12 Podcast today. Take some time to reflect on where you need to take time to be healed, rebuild, and repair. I will put some of the questions Alex asked us during the message in the podcast description so you can take some time to reflect on those yourself. Next week we will be in a night of worship, so the podcast may be a little bit different next week, but it's definitely a week you do not want to miss. If you are encouraged and guided by today's message, please share it with a friend and also give us a review on Apple Podcasts that helps us out. If you would like to learn more about College at 12 Stone, follow us on Instagram at C12 Stone. Hope to see you next week.